9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am sad, like all of you, that the summer is coming to an end, but we have a good show today, and this has been a relentless summer that has offered no dog days, no slow news days, no long periods of nothing happening, and of course, we have had in the past few days a host of developments, and today we're going to talk about how some of those on the Trump Mar-a-Lago front had broader national security implications. We are joined today by Mark Zaid. Mark is the founding partner in Mark Zaid PC, where he often represents former and current federal employees, intelligence and military officers, whistleblowers and others who have grievances or have been wronged by agencies of the U.S. government. You've probably seen him on TV. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hello. And of course, we are joined by Rosa Brooks. Rosa holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy, where she also serves as, and I pause here so everybody who is a regular listener can just chant the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes, as they do across America. Right now, you could sort of hear it. It is a very important job. And and when I walk around, I go to the grocery store and so on, I have to keep people from bowing down before me. I'm tempted to right now, as is our other guest, regular friend, David Sanger. David is White House and national security correspondent and a senior writer at the New York Times. Looks to me like he's in Vermont, but I could be wrong. Uh, I, I am. I'm vying for the job of associate dean for cows and goats, but I, I'm not sure if I can get a letter from Rosa that would I'll write you a me up for that. Okay, it's challenging. Good. All right. Cows and goats. I would have felt like bears and. Mosquitoes. Well, it is true. It is true that the other day, driving home here, my wife saw three little bears go across the road and led to a lot of three little bears storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> I see you have a bed behind you, David, and I, I hope that that bed is just right. Just right for the bears. It's just holding yeah. out here for them I to be here. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, you picked right up on that, Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't miss a trick. The kind of literary reference that we revel in around here. So, Mark, you've been watching as legal maneuver after legal maneuver has unfolded some kind of strangely following the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. These have included pushing to get an affidavit published, made public, which revealed quite a bit, even though the Trump team pushed for it, didn't seem to help them. Their most recent ploy is to push for a special master. And I noticed, I think it was in one of your tweets, could have been somebody else's, but somebody pointed out that the timing of this is a bit off since the assessment of what the FBI found has already been done. What do you think of how Trump's team is handling this? And, you know, you handle people who've been wronged by the U.S. government. Why haven't they called you? Yeah, I I think I even tweeted about that today that I'm almost at the point where as I keep watching this legal team operate that I I want to give him someone who actually understands how to handle 
FBI investigations and classified document cases. But then I remember he called me a scumbag publicly once, and he said I should be sued for treason, which doesn't exist. And I got lots of his supporters calling and emailing me with death threats. So I said, no, I don't think I'm going to represent him. But I'm not particularly impressed by his legal team, mostly because they're just outside their depths. They might be great lawyers at what they do normally, but they have two types of legal strategies. One is what they're doing on right-wing television, which is usually saying very inaccurate legal comments. And then two, what they're filing in court, which at times will be things that certainly lawyers will disagree with generally and specifically, but more importantly, as you set the question up, it's been untimely. Like the request for a special master, I've asked for those before in some of my classified cases. I cite to cases where the government's asked for it. There's nothing wrong with it. It just, it didn't really make sense substantively, quite frankly, as we found out today that the FBI and whoever else is looking at the documents has already looked at all the documents. So what's the special master to do? What's been more surprising, perhaps, although we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, is the fact that the request was so untimely. The delay that they took in between filings, I mean, they filed literally at the last minute Friday night at like 10, 11 o'clock at night to respond to the court's order from Monday earlier, I think it was for supplemental information. If you think it's that important and that time sensitive, why are you taking days to formulate an argument that generally hasn't made a lot of sense? So whether this is just all political, as most of I think their motions have been from a PR perspective, or they're floundering, trying to figure out, frankly, what to do. David, all of this stuff gets cast in a political light, but it also has to be viewed in a national security light. And a lot of this information that we know he had was classified. We don't know how much more the FBI found during its uh, the, the search that took place following the uh, service of the warrant, but presumably there's more. We now have Washington Post story that said Trump would take these boxes of these things around with him on trips. How seriously do you take the assertion that Trump's treatment of national security classified documents posed a a risk or a threat that should be taken seriously? Well, David, it's, it's really at the core of the case, and it's a really hard question to answer since we don't know exactly what the documents were about. There was a subset of the documents that you could truly be worried about. The release last week of the um, affidavit in support of the of the search warrant said that some of the documents contained what are called human intelligence information. In other words, information that would lead somebody to a live human source. Uh, It's presumably a CIA source since it's the CIA that runs most um, human intelligence operations. After that, there's a broad range of of intelligence data that's there. There's secret-related stuff. Then there are some special access programs called SAPs. That's truly delicate stuff. It doesn't necessarily 
mean that something is classified at a higher level, but it means that someone has made the decision that only a very few people in the U.S. government can have access to that data because of its sensitivity and what would happen if it got out. And then there's the third question, which comes out of just the handling, the sort of carefree handling of classified data. One of the great ironies of the Trump administration is that he complained bitterly when news reporters, myself included, published things that he believed were of a classified nature. One point even suggesting that something I had published with my colleague, Nicole Rawroth amounted to, uh, I think, what he called um, just short of treason, a phrase that seems to be used on Mark uh, as well. I got to say, just to interject here, that Rosa is going to feel left out, that Trump has accused both of you other guys of treason and has not included I feel bad. Well, I, I do feel quite bad about that. Well, you know, on the other hand, you know, you have to remember that she's dean for institutions. And what was the other word? <laughs> Cow. And therefore, I think is probably immune from all treason charges. But these documents, what this tells you is that that Trump himself had a very hard time, not surprisingly, sorting out what was truly important and needed to be protected and what was not, and had no respect for a system in which a president, when he's done reading these things, hands it back to a military aide who puts it back exactly where it's supposed to be, not in a cardboard box that gets loaded on for you know trips around the world. You would see a little bit of this in Trump's insistence that many of the documents are, in his words, mine. That's exactly what the Presidential mine. Records Act, yes, was supposed to uh, eliminate the concept that a president actually has ownership of these records, all mine. And uh, the second thing was, you know, there would be moments where he would, you know, take visitors to the Oval Office and call out for somebody to bring in his Kim Jong-un letters. And because they praised him to um, to the skies, he considered this a personal piece of personal praise, therefore a piece of personal correspondence, therefore not part of the U.S. government's own records. And of course, we believe the Kim Jong-un letters were among those taken back uh, at one point, probably turned over by the president in that earlier batch. Rosa, watching this whole saga unfold, it's curious. It's being handled kind of stupidly. But I still come to the conclusion that at the core of this, there is a bigger national security problem. Many people will be listening to this podcast on Tuesday. I have a column coming out on Tuesday. And I talked to a bunch of senior intelligence officials that say, you know, say Trump's had problem with the intelligence community for four years. His first full day in office, he went, gave a speech that many people felt desecrated the memorial wall of the CIA. He's given up in, you know, intelligence. He's given classification to people who shouldn't have had classifications. He's put kind of political hacks in charge of intelligence agencies. Do you see this is actually sort of the culmination or symptomatic of a bigger dysfunctional relationship between Trump and the IC? Is that a rhetorical question? Yes, but it would allow you. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, yes, uh, of course. I mean, and it, it's also in keeping with Trump's whole, you know, l'état-c'est-moi attitude towards the U.S. government. It, it, it's David, that means the state is me. Yeah, David, sorry. Th thank you for clarifying on <laughs> yeah. that. I, as you know, 
up here in Vermont, I have a hard time struggling my way well, through. I'm pretty through fancy. So I, yeah. I'm pretty fancy because I'm the associate dean for centers and institutes. So I do try to drop the occasional, you know, fancy phrase. And is it in the centers that you guys all talk French or only in the institutes? I thought in this, it was in the centres that you speak French. We, oui, may we. Oui. I think Trump has seen the every every piece of the U.S. government as his, and he thinks he should get to tell them exactly what to do, and they should hop to it. And anytime anybody, any person, or any agency expresses any view that is different from what he wants to hear, uh, he flies into a rage. I don't. So I obviously. Which is just to say, I don't think this is specific to the intelligence community, right? I mean, Trump systematically picked fights with virtually every agency. You know, he even got mad at the National Weather Service. Remember when he was changing the changing the maps with markers and so forth? So there's nothing unique about the way Trump treated the intelligence community. You know, he treated it the way he treated the CDC. He treated it. He treated it the way he still is treating the FBI and so forth. And and all of these things obviously are incredibly dangerous. It's it's I still find it so puzzling in some ways. You know, the Republican Party for for so many years has gotten so much mileage out of saying we're the National Security Party. And, you know, polling over many, many years showed that Democrats were less trusted by the American public on national security issues. It was something that Democratic Party leaders really agonized over. You know, how can we how can we take the lead on national security? Because needless to say, Democratic Party leaders didn't think it was accurate that Republicans were good at national security. Uh, and, and I think that was correct. But it's the Republican Party's whole identity was we're the tough guys. We love the CIA. We love the military. You know, we love law enforcement, the FBI. And the fact that the Republican Party's space has been so willing so quickly to just, you know, throw them all off the bus is just astonishing to me. And it suggests that the people's desire to just give a, you know, a big screw you to every institution, every rule, every system outweighs any sort of rational survival instincts they might otherwise have. Yeah, I noticed the former Judiciary Committee chairman in the Senate suggesting Trump should not be convicted of anything because there would be riots. Right. Lindsay, well, Lindsay, Lindsay yeah. leading, leading the riots. Yeah, which is which is impressive. Mark, you've been involved in lots of cases against the you know U.S. government on behalf of whistleblowers and others, and it puts you in a unique position to answer a question that has sort of struck me here. We now know that Trump was told not to take these documents before he left office. He was also told about how you treat classified documents then. And then over the course of the ensuing 20 months, was told this over and over and over again. And finally, he gave back some of the documents. And then they signed, his lawyer signed a document saying it was all of the documents. And it wasn't all of the documents. And now they're taking back the documents, or, you know, went for these other documents, although they haven't apparently, you know, to my knowledge, searched any other place he lived or might have stored them. And they may or may not prosecute him. And I just thought, doesn't this make life easier for you in the future? I mean, if this is the standard that the government is setting, which is that they have to ask pretty please 26 times before somebody returns top secret or SAP or other kinds of documents, don't they have to do that for everybody now? So, in fact, when Hillary Clinton was going through and her email 
phase, which I guess hasn't even ended yet. But when when there was serious inquiry by the FBI into what her situation was of grossly grossly mishandling, negligent mishandling of the records, and the decision was not to prosecute. I had an Espionage Act case underway at the time where I was one of the defense counsel, and we cited to the Clinton defense uh, as a reason why to get the Justice Department to work a a favorable no-jail term for our client who had hoarded a whole bunch of classified documents that were decades old. The person had documents talking about East Germany. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure how that harms anything, but they were still classified. And the same thing with Petraeus, with General Petraeus, with the sweetheart deal that he got. So there is a difference, obviously, being the president, former president of the United States. I think everyone's going to treat anybody, regardless of party, that way. But this is sort of along the lines where I've been going. And unlike some of my colleagues who have been a little bit more firm in saying that, especially post-release of the supporting affidavit, that, oh, Trump's going to be indicted. And I'm not sure yet. I do think someone's going to be indicted. Because even how how you set this question up, when I always think about how did all these documents get down to Mar-a-Lago, and one, I don't understand how they felt they were rushed out of the White House. I mean, you knew you were leaving the White House. But I just see someone like at all of our desks here right now, if you were told, okay, you've got an hour to leave, I, you just take your hand and you just sweep it across your desk and everything falls into a box. So I got an NPR coffee mug that goes in the box and an empty can of Red Bull and some really privileged attorney-client documents as well. It's all a mishmash. Now, that means whoever did that and whoever helped get those documents to Mar-a-Lago, whoever has been handling those documents at Mar-a-Lago, Who knows those people have been handling the documents? These are all fact questions that are going to have to be determined in order to prosecute anyone, and especially Donald Trump. And you see that every step of the way that we get new factual information, at least in my view, the case is stronger for prosecution of someone. And it was amazing that John Solomon, this ally of President Trump, had released the National Archives Acting Archivist letter. Because that letter really actually showed how much and how long the U.S. government was trying to get access and retrieve these documents back from Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. If it had stopped there, I'm pretty confident nothing ever would have happened criminally for anyone. It was post that letter between May and August 8th when the FBI did the search that someone or someones came forward and said that what the lawyer told you in the letter, the email, whatever it was, we haven't seen it, was a lie. And there are still classified records here at Mar-a-Lago. That is what will lead someone to be prosecuted. And they brought this up upon themselves. I mean, it's literally like shooting themselves in the foot by the way they act. And of course, that's what drives Trump most crazy because it suggests that there is someone in his camp who has been in his view disloyal who is you know singing to the prosecutors and that's what's given this whole thing kind of a a crime scene sort of air to the obstruction case although i agree with mark it's not clear that that case will necessarily be made against trump himself i know that's where everybody's mind is going but that's not necessarily where this 
may play out. Well, no, one of I, the other things, David, yeah. though, that we've learned is that it's apparently a woman suggesting she was a member of the Rothschild family, no relation to my family, by the way. Managed to your disappointment, right, David? To my huge, <laughs> my immense disappointment. <laughs> Although I was once introduced to the king of Morocco. And, you know, he has a guy next to him that whispers, you know, you whisper your name to. And so, you know, I get up to the guy and he says, what's your name? So he can tell the king. And uh, I said, David Rothkopf. And he went, David Rothschild? And he sort of shouted it out. The king of Morocco immediately turned around thinking this was going to be a high point. (laughs) Apparently, you know, Mar-a-Lago is a target. Well, of course it's a target. And and other things have been happening there. How do you reckon all of that? I mean, the foreign foreign intelligence services must have throughout this period looked at the U.S. with real skepticism, eh, David? Look, it was a target during his presidency. We knew that at the time. Presumably during his presidency, and this, I'm assuming this will come out in some parts of the of this. He had a, a skiff, a secured facility inside Mar-a-Lago as. President Obama did, even when he rented a summer house or went out to Hawaii in the winter. And when the president travels, there's a a skiff for conducting classified conversations that travels with them. Presumably also that was dismantled at the time that he was no longer president, which leaves open the question, who came up with the idea that you could stick some of these in cardboard boxes in the basement? And uh, maybe or maybe not, depending on who you believe, have a padlock on it. And, you know, that's the key to the Espionage Act elements, because when you read through the Espionage Act, they are not actually charging in any of the documents or even suspecting that he was committing espionage. But the mere mishandling of classified documents by a government official or former government official is of itself a violation of the Espionage Act, even if there is no act of espionage that goes along with it. And I think that's part of his vulnerability. That said, I think it's going to be hard to indict a former president for mishandling documents as opposed to whether or not they found there was a nefarious purpose to holding on to them. Yeah, you know, I think on that, like I said, I've handled a number of Espionage Act cases and, and investigations of them. And historically speaking, it has generally been either actual spy cases. And people don't understand, as David was mentioning, the distinction that the Espionage Act covers multiple types of offenses. Real spying, like Alger James, Robert Hansen, leaking of classified information to the media, like some of my former clients, quite frankly. And then some cases where they literally just hoarded classified information. There was a case sentenced uh, of a fellow named Martin from the NSA. He got nine years in prison for just having a whole houseful of classified information. I think what will make the difference here, and the government may already know all of this, we'll see. They subpoenaed the footage, the, the surveillance footage, and they supposedly it's been publicly reported that they saw people going in and out of the rooms and looking through the boxes. What we don't know is who did they see going in and out of the rooms. If there is proof either through video or testimony of President Trump going through the boxes, especially post sometime this during this year, when it was very clear that he's not allowed to have certain information. 
that would be that would make him more susceptible to criminal charges. If there is any evidence, it would be testimonial, most likely, of him telling people what we've what all of everyone here has said. No, mine, mine, mine. That's my document. Do not return that. I'm telling you not to. And yet he's been warned that the letter from North Korea is classified or presidential, at least. That would be another example of where possibly criminal charges could come against him. We're not there yet. We don't know. But going back to the sources, I found one thing that I found very interesting in, I think it was the cover memo to the supporting affidavit. They made reference, they, the Justice Department, made reference to civilians being sources. Because one source could be Secret Service agents, and which would be really problematic for the Secret Service. Because they would be on both sides of this. Yeah, thing. they would not be happy. And I, I repped some Secret Service agents during the Clinton Lewinsky fiasco with Judge Starr, where they wanted the Secret Service agents to te- and officers to testify. But I don't know if the Justice Department would make a distinction. I don't know if that's a legal distinction or a distinction without a difference to say civilians. And that excludes federal officials. I, I don't know if that was deliberate or not. Um, I haven't seen many people talk about it, but I noticed that. David, you covered the passage of the Espionage Act for the Harvard Crimson. Isn't that correct? Uh, you mean in 1917 during World War I? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, that one was slightly before my time. <laughs> but, um, you know, Mark makes an interesting point. Prosecutions under the Espionage Act are pretty rare various points we've had we've seen a lot of politicians threaten it against uh, reporters but there have been almost no cases there may have, there was one in the world war ii era where that has come up but these are hard cases to go make and while there are non-espionage elements of the espionage act it might be hard to get a jury to convict you know on that on that basis i mean there are certainly other laws, though, about mishandling government documents, which is why the Trump allies were in such a fever to make the case that he was declassifying everything. I bet if we had asked for those documents while he was still in office, we would not have exactly been told they were automatically declassified. No, no question about that. But it seems to be no record that there was an automatic classification. Uh, Rosa, you know, earlier we mentioned Lindsey Graham. Shortly after he made uh, the comment that there would be riots in the streets, Trump released on Truth Social, which, you know, I think has four people following it, a statement saying that because Facebook blocked the truth about Hunter Biden and his laptop, that he would have definitely been elected had they not. And so he is actually the president, and he should be reinstated or uh, a new election should be held immediately. And as a constitutional scholar, I wanted uh, to get your view on that. And on a more serious note, it seems to me that the Republican Party response to this is as risible as we might find Trump's comments or Graham's comments. Actually, could explode into something rather dangerous were Trump actually to be prosecuted. And that's what they want. And it's very reminiscent of January 6th and the run-up to it. And I was, I know you tracked that closely, and I was wondering what your thoughts were. 
I have, I have two thoughts. Um, you know, Trump, he sure, he sure won't quit. I've always thought, and Mark, uh, you're you're the litigator here, but I've always thought that Trump's best defense uh, in any criminal prosecution would be to plead diminished capacity. You know, I, and and it's sort of the perfect defense, right? I had no idea what I was doing. I'm too much of a nitwit to have realized that I was violating any rule. So, you know, if I were Trump's brand new lawyers, I'd be saying, <laughs> that's going to be our argument, sir, if it comes to that. But I mean, more seriously, the the rhetoric about riots in the street, you know, we've everybody is everybody has used this line a million times now, but it's the, you know, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? It's a way to say, hey folks, hey base, this is what you should do without actually coming right out and saying that. And Lindsey Graham is smart enough to know that. Uh, and he's smart enough to have noticed that over and over and over, responsible people have been saying things like, you shouldn't say things like that. You know, in the wake of January 6th, it should not be possible for anybody to think that words like that can't have consequences. You know, the dividing line between a a reluctant prediction and a and a call to action starts getting thinner uh, when it comes to the far right. So no, I, I do find it I do find it worrying. I I I hope but do not know that in the last two years, the FBI and the Homeland Security have done a good enough job breaking up, identifying, you know, defanging some of the most militant and potentially effective violent right-wing extremist groups that if there were riots, they would be riots that didn't really accomplish much of anything. But I'm not sure of that. And, you know, I think, I think, I think it's again very difficult to at this point feel sanguine that things would all be all right, you know, that it would just be just be sound and fury. I don't feel good about it at all. Well, that's a very serious point, and I think it's an appropriate point to end here, and it will keep me from turning your comment to, uh, will nobody rid me of this meddlesome priest, into a reference to David Sanger covering it in the year 1170 when Thomas <laughs> Beck was murdered by Henry II. By the way, that was a hell of a story. It was a big story. <laughs> It was a big story. Four nights, they go in, they kill. Anyway. I uh, have some selfies from that event, but I, do, I can't do, share them. Do, do you, was Sanger there? Do, do your selfies show that? Because that There was be, some long-haired guy in the, in the background. More resemblance to Sanger. We, we reported it by Zoom. Yeah, exactly. David DeSanger, at night present for the coverage. Well, look, it is summer, and, 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 and we're all a little bit punchy, but this does have the possibility of turning into a much more serious case, depending on what we find was discovered there. And it seems very serious right now. Or should uh, prosecution follow into something that could be socially and politically disruptive? So we will keep tracking it. Fortunately, we have uh, access to minds like yours, and we are grateful for your commentary and want to thank you, Mark, and want to thank you, David, and want to thank you, Rosa. Normally, we take a little bit of a break here, but because we keeping this sort of short and informal late in the summer, I will direct all of you who missed the break, who are not members, to go click on the DSRnetwork.com and click on membership and use this moment to sign up to become a member, because as we head into the fall elections, uh, we'll be adding some new coverage as we head into 2024. We'll be adding some new coverage. And it's very clear from these recent developments that things are going to get extremely uh, 
extremely intense as we head into the fall and then into the first part of next year. So become a member, take advantage of listening to smart analysis like this. Once again, thanks to all of you for joining us, and we'll be back with you again real soon. Bye-bye.